Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Well, if any man's thirsty, as they're about to pour the water drink offering, he said, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink of the water of life freely. And then in chapter 8, he comes to a woman called an adultery. I think it's a powerful picture of Israel as an adulterous woman, and he's trying to show her that if she will allow him, he will set her free from condemnation and release her to a place where she could go and sin no more. In chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and so uh, he's talking about the blind, leading the blind, and both of them falling in the ditch, and he's talking about setting them free from their blindness because there are blind leaders that are he literally talks to the Pharisees there and talks to them about the blind leading the blind. In chapter 10, he's the door. He's the good shepherd. You thought that was the door. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And in chapter 12, he is anointed for burial, and, uh, and he is also declared to be the Hosanna. So it just begins to progressively unfold the fact in every chapter that he's the Christ. I feel like I'm rushing, so what I'm going to do is is I'm just going to continue to let the cameras roll, and we will uh, just continue. I just feel like I needed to uh, just go ahead and, 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 and unpack this a little bit more because I felt like uh, uh, I'm, I'm rushing a little bit, and I don't want to do that. We've got the time to share the Word with you, so we're going to do just that instead of like trying to hurry up and get all of it in one uh, setting because we're going to uh, really exhaust this as we dig in. But I want to, I just want to come back and revisit this uh, again about, uh, you know, Jesus comes uh, throughout these, uh, uh, the whole gospel of John. And once, once again, he in chapter one makes a comparison between uh, the natural creation by saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things was made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light. That's really, if you read Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and He said, let there be light. So the comparison right off the bat, again, is that He's saying, uh, you know, I'm comparing the natural creation to the new creation. Once again, I'm just going to keep reiterating this. John writes the Gospel of John for the purpose of saying, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you would have life through His name. And so uh, as he continues to unpack this book of John, we, we see the comparisons over and over again. Number one, Genesis 1, he's the beginning of a brand new creation. And uh, uh, as he gets on down at the, uh, through chapter 1, he talks to uh, Nathaniel and says to him, from henceforth you will see angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And he's really alluding to uh, the Genesis 28 occurrence of the uh, angels of God ascending and descending at Bethel, where God makes a covenant with Jacob. 
So he's showing them that the Bethel that you thought was the Bethel is not the Bethel at all. I'm the true Bethel. I'm the real house of God. And from henceforth he told Nathanael, you will see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. So once again, he takes the natural and pairs it with the spiritual. If you've missed any of the introduction to this, please go back and watch last week's uh, episode. And it's available on YouTube, iTunes, and on your RSS feed by simply going to my website and re-looking re at that. You can go back and review the things that we said. Like I said, we are just filming uh, uh, in continuity so that we uh, don't have to take a break as I'm in this flow. But I want you to see that he, the, the real house of God, he was saying, is not a place over there, but it's here. Uh, he's the Bethel. He's the place where angels of God ascend and descend. In chapter number uh, 2, once again he comes to a wedding. Uh, it's interesting to me that when Jacob goes to Bethel in Genesis 28, and once again we're going to revisit this in detail in probably uh, an upcoming segment very soon. He's on his way to get a bride, and he goes to a well to find his bride. What you find happening in John chapter 2 is that Jesus comes to a wedding. And it's a picture, I believe, of his wedding. And he's actually uh, going to turn water into wine, but in chapter number 4 he finds a woman at the well. Perhaps it's a picture of him on his way to get a bride that will include both Jews and Gentiles because the woman at the well is a Samaritan woman. But as he stops by this wedding, he shows them something spiritual about this wedding. Moses turned water to blood as one of his first miracles, and Jesus turns water to wine as one of his first miracles. Do, do you kind of see this flow? I mean, to me, it just starts to get exciting because it looks like, ooh, he really is showing the comparison that he's in fact the Christ. And he's, you know, John, again, chapter 1 said, Moses gave you the law. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So what he's showing you is, under the law, this is what happened. Moses turns water to blood. That's law. That's, that's death. That's, 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 that's plagues. But Jesus turns water to wine. He's talking about things that produce this life. In other words, the whole picture of the wedding at Cana is he takes six water pots. Six is the number of humanity. Earthen vessels that we are, he fills them with his spirit in this new covenant wedding relationship. And then he turns the water into wine. And he, what, what he's introducing is, and it's amazing to me that these six water pots were used for purifying. He's shifting, he's showing you the way that I'm going to purify you in the new covenant is totally different than I did under Moses. What I'm going to do is put my spirit in you, and I'm going to cause that to cleanse you from the inside out. Then again he comes down to the temple, and he drives the money changers out of the temple and he says to them, you destroyed this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up again. And Jesus is talking in the spirit, and they're hearing him in the natural carnal realm, and they think he's talking about all these beautiful buildings, and they ultimately indict him 
under criminal charges later, and part of what they used to crucify him is this man said he destroyed the temple in the three days. But see, people do not crucify you for what you say. They crucify you for what they think you said. People misunderstand me a lot of times because they're thinking with a carnal intellect, natural mind, natural interpretation. And sometimes we're talking in the spirit. If you don't have a spiritual understanding, you're not going to get what's really being said, and you're going to misunderstand just like they did. They were expecting a physical temple, and Jesus said, that's not the temple. In three days I'm going to raise it back up. This spake he concerning the temple of his own body. Comes to Nicodemus, Nick at night, and he says to Nick, who's a master teacher of Israel, he says to him, listen Nicodemus, you think your natural birth is enough, but your natural birth is not enough you must be born again. See, we, we read that in a 21st century mindset, and yes, it's talking about being born again, but he's really saying this to a master teacher who thinks his ethnic background is going to get him into the kingdom. Listen, there's only one way into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. There's not another option. I don't care if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a Russian, a Chinese, an American, uh, whatever you are, you must be born again because uh, neither the natural avails anything but the new birth and, and, and faith in Christ and believing Him. And that's what he's trying to show Nicodemus is, listen, I came to show you that it's not talking about a natural birth, it's talking about a spiritual birth, and, and he shifts from the natural to the spiritual. And then in the latter part of that chapter, he goes down and he begins to, uh, he begins to, to uh, unpack some things in the next chapter, or the latter part of that, uh, where he begins to talk about um, uh, he, he begins to talk about, first of all, the new birth and the natural genealogy, but then in chapter 4 he opens up and he's talking to a woman at the well. Now Nicodemus comes by night, the Samaritan comes by day, and Jesus said he must needs go through Samaria. And he starts talking to a woman of Samaria uh, who, uh, according to the Jews, is not included. The Jews, this woman at Samaria is shocked, she said, because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, because actually the Samaritans were a part of the ten tribes that had split off of Judah and the two tribes and had split off back in the early days when the kingdom divided, when ten of them went one way and two went the other. But Ezekiel talks about the restoration of the two sticks. I believe it was Judah being restored back to the ten tribes, and they were what was known then as the Samaritans. And so this is really, I'll show you when we get uh, to this, because I'm really going to spend some time on it, that it was talking about including them back in to one stick, making out of twain one new man, and bringing them back into the covenants of promise. He also begins to show this woman at the well that you're thinking in terms of natural again. You think you should worship in this mountain, and we say we need to worship in this mountain. But he begins to tell her, listen, the hour is coming when real worshipers are going to worship Him in spirit and in truth, that it's not going to be an isolated, marginalized place where God lives in an old flapping tent or a building behind a 10 by 10 cubicle in a most holy place. God wants to move into the tabernacle that you are, and true worshipers are going to have access to Him no matter where they're at. And then He begins to set down on a well of Jacob, 
and begins to show her something about, you think I'm talking about natural water, but I'm talking about spiritual water, because I've got water to drink that if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me, and I would give you water to drink, and you would never thirst again. And so this woman at the well comes and finds Jesus, who is the well, sitting on top of her well. But by the time she leaves, she has become a well, and went to the Samaritan and said, come see a man that told me everything ever I did. And she begins to talk about the spiritual dimension of that water at the well. In chapter number 5, he deals with a man who has been laid at the pool of Bethesda, and he's been in this condition for 38 years. Showed you a little bit in the last segment of how the 38 years was the amount of time. If you take the number 38, run it in your concordance, it'll take you back to the children of Israel in their wilderness journey, and the amount of time that they spent wandering around after they forfeited uh, the, going into the promised land immediately was 38 years. Now that's not an accident that when Jesus handpicks these miracles, that yes, He's showing you that He's a miracle-working God, but these should have been convincing arguments to this first century Jews that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He's bringing these pictures back to their remembrance, and He's saying to them, you are the halt, you're the lame, you're the blind, and you're sitting here waiting on the troubling of the water, and an angel to come stir the waters, so that whoever gets in first can get healed. And you know, I shared with you the last segment, it's worth repeating, that the water, was that this pool was near a sheep gate, and they would literally wash the sheep, and the water, and, and then they would cut the throats of the sheep for sacrifice, and the blood would run into this stream that would run into the pool of Bethesda, when the blood of the Lamb would hit the water, it would trouble the water. If you can't see that as a picture of the spiritual Lamb of God, who by the way, John says, right there is the Lamb of God. He's taking you out of the natural and into the spiritual realm. Can you see that the new covenant is shifting from a natural covenant to a spiritual covenant? And man, I, I could go to the book of Hebrews and talk a lot about that because everything switches. It's got better promises, better blood, a better tabernacle, better priesthood, better sacrifices, uh, a better priesthood, everything. It's got a better promised land, a better city, and all of them are new covenant icons speaking of spiritual dimensions. I'm trying to really open your mind to see what Jesus is doing here. And he comes to this man laying at the pool of Bethesda just like he'd come to natural Israel in the Old Testament, offering them the promised land and offering them uh, a reversal of their blindness and, and, and the haltness and the crippledness. And he's saying to them, he comes to them, and while he's saying this literally to a man at the pool of Bethesda, listen to the prophetic overtones. He's saying to them as a nation, wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? And immediately this man is healed. He takes up his bed and walks, and the religious folk immediately start to get screaming. This man healed somebody on the Sabbath because Jesus begins to proceed to show them again that the Sabbath day is not a day of the week. It is a person in the new covenant. Colossians 2, Jesus is the fulfillment. He said, let no man judge you in respect of meat, drink, 
of a holy day or a new moon or of a Sabbath, which things are a shadow. They are a shadow. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath day rest. And many of them missed that. There was a remnant out of Israel that came, that received their Messiah, and that was to whom He came. And so the halt, the lame, and the blind that laid there, a great multitude did not receive it. But Jesus comes to one man and says, do you want to be made whole? And I believe He makes it clear that He's talking to them about something that's not only fulfilled there in the natural, but a spiritual dimension that is being offered to them. In chapter 6, it's the story of Him feeding the multitudes. It's a picture of how uh, when Israel was coming up out of the wilderness, now, if you read John chapter 6, they just left the Feast of Passover. They cross a sea, they're in the wilderness, and Jesus gives them bread to eat. In that chapter, they said, show us a sign that you're the Christ. And Jesus in that setting says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But I'm the true bread that came down from heaven that if a man eat, he'll live. And let me tell you that here they are, look at this. They've left the Feast of Passover, they've come to a wilderness, and He gives them bread to eat. In Exodus, they had the Feast of Passover in Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they're in a wilderness, and He gives them bread to eat. I think He looks at them and says, duh, I'm trying to show you that your fathers ate that kind of a bread and, and, and they're dead, but I'm the true bread. In other words, it's a convincing argument as he begins to show them that all of these signs and pictures are pictures of the natural being brought into the spiritual to see that He is in fact the Christ and that Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth is coming by Jesus Christ. This ought to help us be able to make a shift in our minds from an old covenant paradigm to a new covenant. Hallelujah. Then he comes in chapter 7, and again, uh, the, uh, he, he's, uh, in chapter 7, he shows him again that he's the true Sabbath. He heals somebody on the Sabbath day. But it's in chapter 7, and this is where I started rushing last week. Jesus comes then, I believe it is, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, it's at the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would normally do is, on the last day, the great day of the feast, they would literally take a drink offering, and the priest would uh, walk out on the pinnacle of the steps of the temple, and he would take this pitcher of water and pour out this drink offering. And they would dump that water out. But here's at that split second in time, Jesus steps up on the pinnacle of the temple at that moment in history. And He says to them, if any man's thirsty, let him come to Me and drink of the water of life freely. In other words, He was saying, you thought that was the water. That's not the water. I've come to give you the water of life to drink it freely. You think this is the Feast of Tabernacles, but I'm the true Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to include, just like He showed you with the woman at Samaria, both Jew and Gentile, because I believe the Feast of Tabernacles 
if you go back to Zechariah, is where they go and get the branches from goodly trees of all kinds of different species of trees. And if you go back and read the different kinds of trees that they used to make these booths or tabernacles out of, they were trees that didn't normally grow together. What he's trying to show you is I'm about to join some folk together who don't normally grow together because the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be the Feast of Ingathering. It's going to be the Feast of Harvest. And the harvest is ripe, and the labors are few. So go. do you not lift up your eyes to the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. And he shows them something about another kind of Feast of Tabernacles, where he's the true water of life that he's going to feed them. And, and, and then he comes down in, in, in chapter 8 to a woman caught in adultery. And I, you know, I, 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 like I said, I started rushing last week, but you know, this woman caught in adultery, I think could be a very powerful picture again of adulterous Israel. God calls her an adulterer in the book of Hebrews. And he's about to call once again a remnant out of there. And again, I believe what you see happening here is that he stoops down. What he's trying to show them with this woman caught in adultery, he takes his finger, begins to write in the sand. We could go back, and we probably will when we get there and really develop this a little bit more. But there was a story in the book of Leviticus about how if a man was jealous and thought his wife had been unfaithful, he could take her to a priest and he would take some dust from the floor of the tabernacle, mix it with the water from the drink offering, and he would make this, this potion, and he would give this, he mixed this up, and this woman caught in it. If you were suspicious of your wife uh, being an adulteress, they would give her what they called the water of jealousy, and if she drank this water of jealousy and she was guilty, her stomach would swell up and she would die. But when Jesus stoops down, what he's trying to show them is, I'm the husband. You all said you caught her in the very act of adultery, but if they caught her the very act of the adultery, where's the man at that she was supposed to have committed adultery with? But what Jesus is trying to show them is, I'm not a jealous husband, and I'm not going to make her drink this water. I've come to heal your adulterous situation, not to leave you in adultery with all these false gods, but I've come to take my finger of the divine and put it in the sand of the human existence and write my own name or nature in the sand so that he can write it on the tablets of our heart and can send you forth and say, listen, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus turns around in that setting and says, I am the light of the world. He's saying that in the, on the heels of releasing her from condemnation, because Moses gave you the law and condemned you, but neither do I condemn you. But watch this, it's not just, a lot of people are so glad they're not under condemnation, but he doesn't leave her in that condition. He says, go and sin no more. And a lot of stuff could be said about that, we might unpack that a little bit more when we get there, but that's the story. Are you seeing the continuity of the flow that this whole book of John is a message 
to both Jews and Gentiles, but especially first century Jews saying, hey, everything that I'm doing types and shadows of is stuff you should have remembered from your history books that were really messianic prophecies that are being fulfilled in Christ. And in fact, I am the I am that met you at the bush, Moses. I'm the I am that I am that brought you out of Egypt. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the light. And I'm showing you all of these things so that believing you can have life in His name. The next one is in chapter number 9, and it's a man born blind. And it was he was sent to a pool called Siloam, which is the same Greek word we translate apostolo or an apostolic pool. In other words, what he's saying to this uh, man born blind, he needed to be healed. And to me, it speaks of the blind people of Israel again, who are blind guides, who are about to all fall into the ditch. But he's pointing this blind man to go wash in an apostolic pool, and I believe he was raising up a team of apostles that were right there with him, right there, that would literally come on the scene and create an apostolic pool that all of creation can have their eyes opened and be washed and be made clean. I can't help but think about the apostle Paul, who was Saul at first. When Saul of Tarshish is persecuting the church, and he's out to kill those. He's knocked to the ground, and his eyes are open. But let me just show you this. The chapter prior to Paul being knocked to the ground is the story of Peter and Ananias and Sapphire. Now, I know I'm dumping a lot in this segment. That's why we continued from last week. But uh, when, when, he, when, when, when Peter has Ananias and Sapphire come to him, Ananias and Sapphire come to, to Peter, and uh, Peter says to them, did you sell this for, he says to Peter, we sold this for such and such. And he lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, Ananias, uh, these men are ready to carry you out. And Ananias drops dead. After a while, his wife comes in, and he, 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 she doesn't know that her husband died, and lied to the Holy Spirit because they'd conspired to hold back half the price. And Sapphira, uh, Peter asked her, did you sell for such and such? She said, yeah, we sold it for such and such. He said, well, man, the minute they stand at the door, their feet are ready to carry you out as well. People ask me this question all the time. You know, what does that story mean? Well, first of all, it doesn't say that God killed them. It said they falling down dead. And secondly, I would say that they are still under an old covenant paradigm, and the old covenant is fading away. And so I think even Peter is learning how you ought to operate in this new covenant. But they lied to the Holy Spirit, and I don't believe they were believers, and they were out to rip God's people off. Ananias' name means grace. Sapphire is from the word where they were on the mountain when God gave the law and said there was a pavement of blue sapphire, and very likely the law could have been written on a sapphire stone. So what Ananias and Sapphire speak to me of is the mixture of law and grace. And we, we, when we mix law and grace today, it's a picture that it's killing all of us. Because one thing, it's one thing to mix law and grace, but when you conspire to hold back half the price, and preachers, when you won't preach the whole truth, and you mingle law with grace. It's a perversion of the gospel, and it's killing all of us, and it's holding back half the price. But the very next chapter, when Saul of Tarshish is knocked to the ground, he's blinded by the light, and a man by the name of Ananias, that's not an accident. 
without a sapphire. In other words, grace without the law touches the eyes of a Saul of Tarshish and makes him one of the greatest apostles, an apostolic pool that would say, hallelujah, you can wash your eyes and you can become not blind any longer, but you can see. You can see, hallelujah, that's about the man born blind, coming to an apostolic pool. Chapter 10, he's the door of the good shepherd. Compare that to the Old Testament shepherds who thought they were the shepherds, and Jesus said, I'm the true shepherd. And chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He shows them about spiritual resurrection and natural resurrection. And in chapter 12, he is uh, anointed to his burial, and he begins to show them that he's about to produce through his death, his burial, and his resurrection and inclusion into the covenants of promise. We're out of time. Uh, take a moment to call that number on the screen. If you'd like to sow a seed, go to our website, or you can send check or money order to the number that'll come up on the screen. Thank you for joining us again this week. God bless you until next week.